find that that chapter has 60 verses. 60 verses. Almost all of which is Stephen's defense or apologetic. We used that word last week to describe some things. His uh, defense of the Christian faith. The, the, the opening question of chapter 7 when the high priest asked him, asked him, are these charges true? And we'll, we'll backtrack a little bit. I, I was interesting. Uh, look here in the front. Uh, see that um, the, the picture over there the, uh, uh, to my right a little bit where they have uh, the, 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 like the, the, the spirit coming down upon Jesus and he glo he's radiant. This one over here. See him? See him? Shake your head. Yes. Say hi, Sam. You remember at the end of chapter 6 when the Sanhedrin pulls him in and they looked upon his face and it says they, they looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I would think that that's probably how they tried to depict Stephen uh, if in, in some setting. That's how they would do that, the, the kind of like the holiness around, and that was a, a common approach or technique. So the seventh chapter is where we're going to go. Now, I'm going to just kind of select portions of it. So uh, I'll tell you where I stop and where I pick up. And so I'm just going to pick pieces of it because those pieces that fit well into um, – into the heart of what this whole seventh chapter is about. Now, <clears throat> just as a point of information, FYI, there was a British preacher. Uh, his name was Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was called Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones Doctor because he was actually a medical doctor. And then he sensed call to preaching teaching and uh, began a very extensive expository uh, approach to scripture. It has some wonderfully well done works. I have a, several of those. He preached from Acts chapter 7 38 sermons on that chapter alone. So it's not like there isn't stuff there if you, if you want to look for it. But since the mind can absorb only what the seat can endure Okay, I'm not going to try to go for 39 uh, sermons on this single chapter. And all God's people said that was a good place for the amen. Yeah, yeah, we're not going to do that. But I am going to just pick some of the verses and I'm going to cover chapter 7 pretty much this morning. But we're going to have to move along in order for it to, to, to be captured. So let me read, beginning of verse 1. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. That's the end of verse 3. So he's going to talk about key people in the history of Israel. This is So the sermon title was something like... Uh, uh, history 101, uh, Profile and Courage, History 101. So we're going to talk about Stephen, and he does this uh, rehearsal of the, of the history of the people of Israel for his purpose, for his defense. 
Jump down to verse 17 if you're following along in the scripture. Afterward, it comes in on the on the person of Abraham. Uh, as, as the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He, he dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. This is kind of an excerpt from the... From the transition point to from Abraham now to to Moses and uh, the the role that Joseph played in, in getting the people of God from where they were in the land of Canaan down to Egypt for a period of time until they could be restored back to the land that God had promised him. We'll jump down to verse 30 now because here's the situation in which Moses is occurring and so Verse 30 says, after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. And as he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. <clears throat> then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. Break down a little bit farther to verse 39. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Remember that word. <clears throat> ancestors refused to obey him. That's part of the problem that the Sanhedrin are going to be receiving. They didn't listen. They didn't obey. It was, it was, it's the commentary. Verse 40 says, they told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. And that was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephan, the idols you made to worship. And after kind of linking all these important characters in the history of Israel. Stephen goes from preaching to meddling. Verse 51. You stiff-necked people. Now that's not the way you win friends and influence people. You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? 
They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. Now that's the, a selected portion of the seventh chapter of the book of Acts. We're going to pick a couple of those pieces and, and talk a little bit about that. The, the setting, and I don't know, we, we don't have, uh, I, I, I don't think we were able to find a, a picture. Maybe we did. I, I, I'll have to see what they have in the visual. But, but if, if you can get the picture of the setting, this is, this is in what is it, it, called a, uh, the, the chamber of the hewn stone. It's, a, it's one of the rooms that is a part of the tabernacle. If you can picture the tabernacle as a big rectangular a, a temple, as a big, big rectangular area, divided into, let's say, uh, half. Um, in the half that is around the place where much of the worship would occur, there are a number of build, uh, rooms that just surround that. One of them is the place where the Sanhedrin, or Sanhedrin, depending on how you like to put your emphasis, um, that's where they would gather for their their meetings, their considerations, their deliberations. The Sanhedrin is made up of 70 religious leaders uh, plus the high priest. So it would be a group of 71 people, and they would sit. Uh, if we had rearranged our chairs, it would be as if uh, the, the, high, the chief priest would sit up at the top there. And then you would have the Sanhedrin in a semicircle kind of around you. And if I was Stephen, I would be in defense talking to the, excuse my bad, my bad. So, but talking to the chief priest, giving my defense, and you would have all these other guys sitting there looking, waiting for the opportunity to pass sentence on me because of what I have done. Now, this feels very much like something Jesus went through, doesn't it? It almost sounds like it, like there unjust accusations and then things that he endured. Very similar kind of thing. So there are a number of accusations that are leveled against Stephen. If we recall back from the sixth chapter, uh, there were blasphemous words that were spoken against Moses. That's in verse 11 of chapter 6. Verse 11 also says there were blasphemous words spoken against God. It's interesting that they were more worried about the words spoken against Moses than they were God because in order of priority. There were, there, were, there were accusations about him speaking against this holy place, the temple. There were accusations that he was speaking against the law. That's verse 13, those two things. And then probably one other and probably could be lumped up in with the with the other four, but and that would be that Jesus would destroy the temple. He, they said he said that Jesus would destroy the temple and alter the custom which Moses had handed down. Those are the accusations. So when the when the chapter begins in, in, in verse one of chapter seven, the high priest asks him, "Are these charges true?" Stephen does not answer that question. That's the wrong question. The charges are not true. So what Stephen does say, this is what's gone on. This is what the story is about. And so he then backtracks to uh, this history lesson of sorts as he makes this defense in this chamber of hewn stone. Interesting, the place is a chamber of hewn stone. Uh, pictures I've seen of it show like they're, it's all 
hewn stone. It's not bent. You just sit on a, a stone slab, the Sanhedrin 35 on each side, on these, talk about, you've got a comfortable chair. They're sitting on whatever, stone. And not not very comfortable, but boy, it probably matched their look, would be my guess. But it's interesting that eventually Stephen gets stoned after he's accused in the chamber of hewn stone. Uh, but I get ahead of myself. We'll get to that next week. So hang in there uh, at that point. This message today has kind of like two hinges to it. And I'll... I'll First hinge or the first aspect of it is this. The sermon reminds us, first of all, of the patience and long suffering nature of God towards stubborn people. Okay? Um, now, you may not be convinced you're a stubborn person, uh, but I think we tend to be that way. Sometimes it's hard for us to make changes, sometimes we get in this groove this kind of rut that we get into. And, and so when change occurs, we, we don't really like that. We just got to buck against it. We, we tend to be resistant to change. But this particular defense reminds us of the patience and long-suffering of God. And that's what the story is all about. So if I was going to, uh, if this was the symphony, I would put it into several movements. So let me give you the movements, and they involve characters. Movement number one would involve the, 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 the key person, and, it, and it's Abraham. According to verse 4, Abraham, he is called out to go to that promised land, but he makes it halfway to the promised land and settles in this area called Haran. But God is merciful, even though he stops, even though Abraham stops partway and does more than tell Abraham to, to get going to the promised land, he actually nudges him, moves him along in the process. One translation of, of the uh, verse, uh, let's see, uh, verse 4, the end of verse 4 says, After his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Now, when we, we didn't read that particular verse, but in NIV it says, So he left the land of Chaldeans, settled in Haran, and after the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. But the translation is better that God removed him from there, literally. He kind of, have you ever had to get someone kick you in the butt to do something? And I don't know how God does that precisely. I don't know what his foot is like, although there are times when I've sensed the nudge, and I suspect we all do, but there's that just kind of, you're, you've gone this far, and that's nice, but that's not where I called you to. That's not what I've got for you to do. And so there's the nudge of God. And we're talking about the patience and long-suffering nature of God towards stubborn people. One of the quickest things, or the best things we could admit right away is, I am stubborn. It might be easier for you to turn to the neighbor beside you and say, you really are stubborn. I'm glad I'm not. But that may not help the situation very much. But the point is that, that was, that's the nature. It certainly was the nature of this audience, this Sanhedrin group that, that Moses or that Stephen was dealing with. So God, God's mercy begins with choosing Abraham 
to call him out of all the peoples of the earth. What a wonderful privilege and opportunity to inherit a land that was promised to him. And then God's patience begins by giving Abraham a little bit of an extra push to get all the way to the promised land when he had settled halfway in Haran. So the first movement of this is the movement involving Abraham. God gives him a little bit of a push. Um, Corrie Ten Boom uh, made a comment. She said, faith is like radar that sees through the fog the reality of things at a distance that the human eye cannot see. Faith is like radar that sees through the fog the reality of things at a distance the human eye cannot see. For Abraham, he needed that little bit of a push to get through the fog to be able to get to the place that God had for him. That's movement number one. Movement number two involves the, the character of Joseph, and we know the story about Joseph. There's a one... <laughs> Joseph's an amazing character. I, I mean, there's some good stuff. I, 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 I could... I could settle on Joseph for a long while, too. Talk about some of the qualities. But very quickly, verse 9. The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. So here's another instance of a people, people got his brothers, resisting the will of God. They were jealous. And their jealousy, uh, in, even in that, God was speaking to them through Joseph, and even implying that they might someday honor Joseph as their superior. You know the stories in terms of the the, the, the shocks of wheat and, and those kinds of things where they all just kind of gather around and the stars and all this kind of stuff. That's all part of it. But, but they're resistant. They kind of God's way, this family kind of deal. But verses 9 and 10, the end of it says, But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who made him king, who made him rather governor over Egypt. In other words, in and through the jealousy of his brothers and the resistance of the patriarchs, God was patient and merciful. And he kept on working for their deliverance. He, he, he was persistently demonstrating his patience and long-suffering. They rejected God's word and Joseph's dreams, but God, instead of judging them, used the very sin to bring rescue to them. When they ran out of food and had to come begging to Egypt, God used that. And even when they had to come to their brother whom they hated. Again, the patience and long-suffering of God just trying to nudge this people along. Again, this is the defense that Stephen is mounting. See how that resistance worked in Abraham's life. See how the resistance against God, pushing against God, occurred in the life of Joseph. So then he goes to one other character. Again, these are all familiar characters of the Sanhedrin group. And that's the character of Moses. And his piece occupies a lot. Verses 17 down through 44. There's a lot of content in there in terms of what can be talked about. And 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 I, I'm going to just focus in on one particular event, and it's the golden calf and that wilderness wanderings piece. In verses 39 to 41 of chapter 7, I'm going to make sure I get over there, right? 39 to 41. Uh, you have, after, after all the discussion about the, how God was working on Moses, we read some of that, God revealed himself to him, um, 
the scriptures say, in spite of all that patience, verse 39 says, our fathers refused to obey him. I told you to remember that. But thrust him aside, and in their heart they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we don't know what had become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and rejoiced in the works of their hands. That's a key piece. That's a key phrase. They rejoiced in the works of their hands. I'll come back to that in just a moment. For many of those people, God's patience came to an end at that point. Verse 42 says that God turned and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. In other words, since they reject the true worship of God and they want idols made in their own, with their own hands, God gives them up to that reality behind all the items, which is essentially demonic, which is essentially satanic, which is opposition against God. So verse 43, put it this way. Um, you filled up the shrine of Moloch and the star of your god, Refin. This is the people of God who should be worshiping the God who revealed himself to them. Instead, they substitute something else, the work of their hands. And so God gives them over to that. You took up the tent of Moloch the star of the god of Refin. If you wanted to do an aside study and started to do a word study, looked up uh, Moloch or the star, uh, the god of star, uh, uh, Refin, you'll find that those are essentially demonic and they involve, in many cases, in Moloch for certain, uh, child sacrifices, uh, stuff that you just wouldn't even, you wouldn't even think any, good Jewish person in their right mind would settle for in terms of worship. Uh, but they go that direction. It's a part of the commentary uh, that's tragic about the people of God. But notice the pattern. They're resisting his grace and his mercy to them his, and, and patience and long-suffering are, are the thing that, that's coming through pretty clearly. The last movement, if I was going to make it movement number four, it involves these other guys. And so I, I think I called it movement number four was et, 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 and others, et al. Um, just abbreviation. And we're really talking about Joshua and David and Solomon. All of those characters are talked about in verses 45 to 50. Especially there you find the focus on the temple. So when you get done looking at, at the accusations that Stephen is making of the, of the Sanhedrin defense uh, that he makes, there are essentially five things. He says, first part, movement one, essentially they misunderstood their spiritual roots. They didn't get it. They forgot their roots, if you will. And then the next piece is they rejected their God-sent deliverers, whether it was uh, Joseph, whether it was Moses. God sent these people, these, these leaders, to lead them out, but they rejected them. We don't know anything about that Moses guy. He's up on the mountain too long. We don't know anything about him. Joseph, we got rid of him. We resisted that kind of thing. They disobeyed their law versus 37 to 43, that was all part of his accusation. They despised their temple, 
verses 44 to 50, talks about our forefathers had the tabernacle of our testimony with them. In the desert, it had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. And then, then our fathers under Joshua brought it with them, took it from the land of the nations that God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David. And it goes on, it's Solomon who built this house for him. They had essentially despised their temple. And then in verses 51 to 53, they resisted their God and his truth. Those are the accusations that are brought against them. The first piece of this is a reminder of the great patience and long-suffering of God toward his people. Now, it's easy to make that a history lesson and say, okay, that's what they did. That's what the people of Israel did. That's what the Jewish people did in their response. But you know, for us here, we have to understand that sometimes we can be just as resistant to the work of the Spirit of God in our own life. And it's not just them. It's me. And we don't often like to think about that, but there are those times, more often than we would like to think, that we resist the work of the Spirit of God. Maybe there are things that are going on in your world right now. They may be patterns that you're in. They may be things you're wrestling or struggling with. And you just don't want God to be bringing truth to you because of what it may ask of you. And so you resist his working. The scripture talk about a, a variety of things that we can do against the Holy Spirit. We can grieve him. We can, we can quench him. We can resist him. Those are all words that are used to describe the way we sometimes approach the person and work of the Holy Spirit of God. We always have to remember that God is patient and God is long-suffering, but do not presume upon his good grace. You think you've got all kinds of time, but you don't know how much time you've got. And you've got to be very careful with that. The second piece of this message, and if you will, a hinge on which this message, are some warnings. And the sermon here of Stephen warns us of the danger of resisting that work of God. That's where I want to slow down a little bit and look at that one passage, verses 51 to 53. When you, when you look at those words, it says where Stephen gets in their face. And I, I, I'm sure it's, it's, it's like being surrounded by all of these religious people wondering what in the world they are going to think or do when I am done with my defense. He he. He really lays it out there. It's not, this, isn't, this isn't pretty. This is in your face. And he puts it right out there. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. Exclamation point. If Victor Borger was doing it, it would be kind of thing. Okay, so, uh, so much for that. You know I'm old enough. If you don't know who Victor Borger is, you need to research that. Okay, but you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. You know, just an emphasis in terms of that exclamation point. Asking the question, was there ever a prophet your fathers didn't persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you've betrayed and murdered him, you who have received the law 
that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. And so that's 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 the message that comes there. He warns them about resisting. What was the root evil in all of this resistance to God's will? Why did they resist the Holy Spirit? I'll offer two suggestions. The heart of Israel's problem was the problem with their heart. The heart of Israel's problem was the problem with their heart. The heart is deceitful, Jeremiah says. It's desperately wicked. Who can know it? There are times when we try to uh, cover it over and make it seem like it's not so bad. There are all kinds of responses we can make. But the heart of Israel's problem was a problem with their heart, and it's our problem as well. So there are two things. We resist the work of God by resting in our own works. Let me take you back to verse 41. We read that earlier. They they brought sacrifices to it, that calf that you know the story just happened to jump out and make itself. You know, it's an amazing miracle. And, and you know that story well enough, I think. So they brought the sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. We resist uh, the work of God when we rejoice in the work of of our hands. They wanted this Sanhedrin group. They wanted a kind of God and a kind of worship in which they could demonstrate their power and their wisdom and their righteousness and their morality and their religious zeal. Now, I can say that that's probably true of the Sanhedrin. I can also say that's probably true of people today. You see, we want a God and a kind of worship that shows our power, our wisdom, our righteousness, our morality, our religious zeal. And we, we worship a God of our own making. We don't always pay attention to what his commands are. We try to alter them. We try to modify them and put them into the work of our hands. And so we excuse ourselves with our own self-worship of the works of our hands. They got their joy from what they could achieve, not from the God who had made them and longed for them to worship, especially not from God who was so free, so great, so sovereign, so self-sufficient, that he chooses to get all the credit for everything good. And he won't let himself be limited or controlled by anybody's man-made temple. You see, we are too much about worshiping the work of our hands. And that's a danger. It's a warning that comes in verses 51 to 53. There's a second warning that comes. And that is that we resist by worshiping anyone or anything other than God. I've long since forgotten who it was that said it. I could take a, take a guess, but it doesn't really make a difference. I heard long ago a definition of idolatry that has been helpful for me. 
you know, we can think about idolatry in terms of some Buddha somewhere, some fetish item that's attached in a forest glen. We, we, could, we, can, we can think about that in terms of idolatry. But the definition that I came across long ago was this. Idolatry is worshiping anyone or anything other than God. Simply put, worshiping anyone or anything other than God. In verse 48, Stephen says to the group, the Most High does not dwell in houses made with hands. That doesn't mean that he didn't dwell in a tabernacle when, when Solomon built it. We know the story there that, that after Solomon prayed, the glory of God came down in that place. And, and the presence of God filled that place. And so we, we know that he, he can do that, but he's not limited there. It's more than just a building because then this Jewish people with, with this beautiful temple they had that was going to be destroyed in 70 AD, they thought it was really almost invincible, and yet God had to take them down a peg because they were worshiping that. And they were all getting their knickers in a twist over the fact that they were they were they were being accused and uh, or they were resisting the the law and the temple. They, they 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 there were things that they were fighting against. God had to take them down a peg. Verses forty nine to fifty one says, "Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What house will you build me?" says the Lord. Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? We worship things. We worship people instead of God. A.W. Tozer had a quote, and uh, l- let me read it for you. He says this, It's time for us to repent. For our transgressions against the blessed third person have been many and much aggravated. We have bitterly mistreated him in the house of his friends. We have crucified him in his own temple as they crucified the eternal son on the hill above Jerusalem. And the nails we used were not of iron, but of the finer and more precious stuff of which human life is made. Out of our hearts we took the refined metals of will and feeling and thought, and from them we fashioned the nails of suspicion and rebellion and neglect. But unworthy thoughts about him and unfriendly attitudes toward him we grieved by those, by those we grieved and quenched him without end. Words again, by unworthy thoughts and unfriendly attitudes toward him, we fashion the nails of suspicion, rebellion, and neglect. The truest and most acceptable repentance is to reverse the acts and attitudes of which we repent. So he concludes by saying, we can best repent our neglect by neglecting him no more. Let us begin to think of him as the one to be worshipped and obeyed. Let us throw open every door and invite him in. Let us surrender to him every room in the temple of our hearts and insist that he enter and occupy as Lord and Master within his own dwelling. comes from his book called Pursuit Pursuit of Man. And God is after us, and he longs to draw near to us. He warns us, don't worship the work of your hands.
There are churches that worship what they've done. They worship the facilities that they have erected. Some of them have an edifice complex, someone said. They are, they are they're just all about that. Wow, what a wonderful thing we have done and accomplished here. And, and it doesn't mean that that's insignificant. It means that God isn't impressed. In the simplest and humblest of places where God shows up, he's more, far more interested in that than, than, than the brick and stone that we have. Um, we need to, like these people, repent of their resisting the Holy Spirit of God, resisting God and his Holy Spirit. Now, next week, <laughs> we're going to see what the people did with the truth that they were put right in front of them. And we know, don't we? We've read the story. We know how it turns out. doesn't turn out real good for Stephen, although in some sense, it might. So just uh, so you know, the message title from next week, for next week is From Catastrophe to Opportunity. Okay? That's where we're going. From Catastrophe to Opportunity. The end of chapter 7, first four verses of 8. So here's, so here's the deal. We know how it turned out for Stephen. He was stoned. I mean, they talk about trial. This was, this was, this was a kangaroo court. They had made up their mind what was going on. And they drug him out. And while they're drag, 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 dragging him out, I don't know if they drugged him or not, but while they were dragging him out, uh, they have the witnesses and they lay their clothes at the feet of this guy named Saul. And, and Saul was approving to his death. And, and they stone him on the way. On the way, they're stoning him. And then he, and it's, it's, oh, it's a wonderful story. But, uh, so I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here, but just, just to remind you, you know, sometimes things occur and we don't see the end from the beginning. We, we're all caught up in this thing right now. And we say, God, how can you, how can you be doing something? How can, how can you let this happen? We'll talk a little bit more about that next week. But for here today, the message is a detailed and a lengthy sermon. It's the longest one in the book of Acts. But it has true truths. We've talked about that. God is persistently patient with us, and we are persistently resistant to him. I guess those two have to go together. He is persistently patient. We're persistently resistant. So don't presume upon his patience, his long-suffering. By persisting in your resistance, I, 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 am bipolar. Uh, in the in the sense that I worship with a Bible in one hand and a hymnal in the other. That's what makes me bipolar. So okay, I just can't. I, I keep that handy, and as I was just kind of pulling things together for this, immediately, a song comes to mind, and it's a familiar hymn. It, 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 so, so it's it's really familiar for many. So it goes like this. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. 
Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will. While I am waiting, yielded and still. It was not the response of the Sanhedrin. It can be your response today because God is patient with us and we can be resistant to him. And it always comes down to a choice. What will we worship? Who will worship? Let's pause for prayer. This is a lengthy portion of scripture that we have kind of distilled a bit. And it would probably do us well to just kind of sit in that sermon for a while in the seventh chapter and call to mind the stories we've heard over the years, the lessons we've learned. And all that we ask, Father, today is that you will help us to be so very grateful for your patience with us, your long-suffering toward us, And help us to heed the warnings about worshiping things we have made. They may be a church that we have built or something that we've been attached to for a long period of time. It, it, may, be, it may be something else that we're worshiping or someone else. Help us to hear your word to us today and respond to your great grace and mercy. Father, I pray for this congregation today who uh, finds themselves in a place that they may be a bit puzzled about. How could things go where they are going, where they have gone? And my prayer is that you would help them, help us all, to see that you are not finished with us when we are worshiping the God who is patient and merciful to us. And you still have work for us to do. My prayer is that we will not resist your work, but we will cooperate fully with the full working and moving of God. Even when there are nudges that are needed, like you gave to the people of Israel throughout their story, Nudges to just keep us moving along so we don't get stuck halfway and settle down. I pray that you administer to each one as you know their needs. And we give you, we purpose to do this, all glory and praise because you are the one who, who is worthy of all glory and praise. It belongs to you. You made us for yourself. So may we simply Rest in who you are and worship and praise the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, the God who sent Jesus Christ to this earth, and the God who gave us the blessed Holy Spirit who attends to us even still. So we thank you for what you'll do. We'll give you praise today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now that's Acts chapter 7 in a shortened version. Um, so just take it to heart. 
chew on those things that God would just kind of bring to you and say, hey, take a look at that and let him receive your worship. God bless you. Greet one another as you go. Have a great rest of the day and a wonderful week ahead.